Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt. And I'm Tim. We like to explore why we do what we do with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting in order to bring those insights to you. We also like to introduce you to people and concepts that can help you lead a better life or improve how you work, bringing you ideas, methods, and tricks on how to positively apply behavioral science insights in your day-to-day life. Well, Kurt, you apply behavioral science insights all the time with your work at the Lantern Group, don't you? I mean, helping companies apply behavioral science to improve their employee communication and motivation, right? Yes, yes, I do. But you, you do the same thing with behavioral alchemy when you help companies apply behavioral science to change the behavior of their people or better design a product or service. I've seen your work and it kicks ass, man. Kicks ass. Well, thank you. But I've also seen your work, and it is the stuff of legend. Epic. (laughs) It goes down in the history books. Okay, okay, okay. We could go down the mutual admiration society here, but needless to say, right, we help companies effectively apply behavioral science, and I think we are better at that because of this podcast. Oh, I agree. I, I know that I've used a lot of the ideas and concepts that I've learned from our guests with my clients, from helping change farmers' behaviors to designing an app to help people better manage their money. The insights our guests you know, bring have really helped me help my clients. That is so true. And I think today's guest is one of the best guests that we've ever had on as it relates to showing us how to use behavioral science to positively impact our lives. Something that I will definitely use in my life and one that I think you, the groovers out there who are listening to this, will also be able to use right away. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. John Levy, our guest today, is a behavioral scientist best known for his work in influence, human connection, and decision-making. More than a decade ago, John founded the Influencers Dinner, which was a secret dining experience for industry leaders ranging from Nobel laureates, Olympians, celebrities, executives, artists, and world-famous musicians. Totally a who's who. But with COVID impacting in-person meetings, John pivoted and started the Influencers Salon, which takes the behavioral science insights from the dinners and applies it in an online format. John is also the author of two books, The 2AM Principle, Discovering the Science of Adventure, which explores how we can get more adventure in our lives, and his newest book, You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence in which he demonstrates the importance of human connection, trust, and community to accomplishing what is most important to us. By the way, it is a fantastic book. And if you're listening, you should go out and buy it right now. I I highly, highly recommend it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You should go out and get it right away because it's a great read. Okay, so we've had the pleasure of meeting John through the Influencer Salon. And he is not only brilliant, but he is one of the nicest, most authentic people you could ever meet along with just being a great author. It was a great conversation that talks about what influence is, how to build community that can grow and expand to include people you want to hang out with. So I don't know why I'm still hanging out with you, Tim, but still, <laughs> and, 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 then the, and then steps to making those connections. So it was really a wonderful conversation. And I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of it. Yeah, it was fantastic. And we touched on many things, uh, Captain Kirk, power versus influence, context, trust, and a new genre for me, pop goes classical. Yeah. Okay. Too fun. And in pure John form, 
at the next influencer salon that we were part of. What did he have playing in the background, Tim? What was the music that we came into? Pop goes classical. Exactly. That is that was so so him. So yeah, I, I also want to say, you know, John is always paying attention and always giving. He's a yes. he is truly, truly a giver. Yes, yes, he is. And with that, please sit back and enjoy a strong pour of generosity, novelty, curation, and awe as you listen in on our conversation with John Levy. John Levy, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. This is so exciting. I've literally been waiting for months to be on your show. Uh, I'm, I'm super stoked. I'm so ready to geek out and have fun with you too. Thank you for having me on. Well, we are glad to have you. We're going to get started with a speed round and I get to ask the first question. Is that okay, Kurt? Coffee or tea? Okay. You're going to get a kick out of this. I've never had a cup of coffee in my life. And so I, when I was reading the audio audible for my, or not audible, audio recording for my book, I really had tea, I think for the third or fourth time in my life. And I enjoyed it far more. Wow. So what is the reason? Is there a, is there a reason for never I having coffee? Sparkling water, the champagne of water. No. And I like, <laughs> it, it like serving that hot and slightly flavored with, you know, tea leaves sounds awful. So why would I want to, yeah. although I do really enjoy like a spindrift, like a nice yeah. flavored yeah. sparkling water, but that's chilled. Right? Ah, but that's chilled. Oh, ah, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, so it's a life largely caffeine free then. I, I'm not none. I'm, I'm not like much of a, I, I wake up super easy. I, if I'm tired, I should sleep. I don't like it's uh, and so, yeah, I'm caffeine free, much like several versions of Coca-Cola. You, you surprise me every time we talk, every single time. There's some new insight that I just am amazed at. So, all right, speed round that isn't very speedy. So we're, we're going to the second question. Would you rather have dinner, and mm -hmm. this is interesting for you, right? With your favorite musician, athlete, or actor, or somebody else in the world? Is there somebody that you haven't had dinner with yet that you want to have dinner with? Oh my God. So the truth is I'm, I got to eat dinner with my most desired person and it was Peter Cullen, the voice of Optimus Prime. And that's because oh. I'm <laughs> such a geek that like, I he literally made a recording welcoming me into the Autobots and instructing oh. me to transform and roll out. And I was ready to die. So, like I've hosted my dream person. And here's what I've learned. What I've learned is that the people that I thought would be like, oh my God, I'm so happy I hosted them. It's never them that I fall in love with. Uh, oh. Maybe not never, but like the people that I fall in love with are the people that are just like a kind of like oddball creative director at a top agency or oh, yeah. the guy who created Comic-Con or like yeah. really made it what it is today, Garib Seamus and Tom DeSanto, who did the X-Men series and the Transformers. Like I, I'm giving you a lot of geeky examples, <laughs> but, but it's far more the person than the accomplishment is the funny thing. Yeah. And I think we're used to thinking about it as accomplishments. Like, oh, they did this. They must be amazing. Well, it's it's that idea that you never want to meet your hero because mm -hmm. you you put that hero so far up on that pedestal that no matter they could be the best conversation ever, but they're not necessarily going to meet up to whatever that is that you've made up in your mind about who they are and how fantastic this is going to be and all of those things. So I get that. I get that a lot. All right. Okay. Let's say in the geek world, who is the better captain of the Enterprise, James T. Kirk or Jean-Luc Picard? Oh, my God. So here's, 
here's the, I'm going to say the same thing Neil deGrasse Tyson said. <laughs> it doesn't actually matter. Because, Ooh. wait, wait, wow. let me explain. Okay. Because without Kirk, nothing matters. Oh. And, and the reason I say that is that Kirk and the Enterprise taught us how to dream to explore. Mm-hmm. They gave us a version of the universe that presented diversity. It de- presented hope, and it presented it in a way that allowed for conflict that spread across the crew so that everybody had a say. Yeah. So they had cognitive friction. Bones didn't just follow orders. And, and even Leonard Nimoy's character, Spock, like, was supposed to be emotionless. And like all these things came out of that, that universe that inspired people to dream and hope so that one day we could even have a Picard. Yeah. Right. Uh, so re- with uh, Picard is probably technically like a better captain, but <laughs> but Kirk taught us to dream, and that's what I think is important. I don't know. The, we-, we can just end the whole story right there. That was fantastic. <laughs> okay. But Kurt, there is one more speed round question. Oh man! But how can we? How we can't top that? I don't know. Maybe we can. Here we go. Power or influence? What should people be striving for in today's world? So here's a very funny answer. Mm. There are certain countries where power still reigns supreme, mm-hmm. where you will not probably get much done unless you can amass some power. You need to control the situation. And that's because things are probably kind of unruly. And, but that's in the rarity. In most of the developed world, influence is what's far more important because it's an opt-in. With power, I'm controlling something. With influence, I'm guiding it. And if we want to have a functional democracy, it's probably not going to happen if you're trying to control everybody so much as guide them to make better decisions and give them an opt-in. Well, and you have done a lot of work on influence. So, which is again, part of this book that you are are writing, you're invited, right? What's the subtitle for it again? I forgot. It's, it's, I love it. The art and science of cultivating influence. That was it. Cause I love the cultivating part of that. I just thought that was, that was fantastic. So first off, what is your definition of influence? Uh, so influence, I use the kind of dictionary definition, which is the ability to impact a person or outcome, right? It's just the ability to have an effect on something. And when I actually look at influence, though, I look at it as not like, oh, do you have a lot of Instagram followers? <laughs> right? Like, and, and we've kind of made those things synonymous because, yeah, pe- if people opt into listening to you, then you have a level of influence. But most of the people that have profound levels of influence aren't active on social media. And most of the influence uh, or people that influence us, it doesn't matter what they post. So for example, Kurt and Tim, you have a lot of influence on one another. And it's not because Tim posts something to Twitter and you read that Kurt. (laughs) It's because of the nature of the level of trust that you have and the sense of belonging when you're with each other, around each other. And so when I look at influence, I break it down to global influencers like uh, Oprah, uh, Beyonce, uh, Sir Richard Branson, right? They have they can't even like walk down the street without being bothered, and everybody around the world kind of knows who they are. Then the next level down are industry level influencers. They're people who have an ability to impact an industry often through their thought leadership, position, or previous success. Meaning, if I sold DoubleClick, which I didn't, <laughs> if I had that kind of money, I'll, I'll be honest, Tim and Kurt, I would not be here right now. You would not be talking to <laughs> us. <laughs> but no matter how had, much influence we have. Yeah, yeah, there you go. But if I had, it didn't, wouldn't matter if I did anything else because I'd have enough street cred, right? That's previous success. Thought leadership, 
I could be a professor somewhere, never having had my own company, but people really care what I think, right? Like a Stephen Hawking, right? Mm-hmm. Or a Neil deGrasse Tyson. He never went to a star, but he <laughs> talks about it. <laughs> and then you have people who've, uh, who hold positions. So if you're the CMO of Disney and you suddenly say, okay, we're only doing print advertising, that would have a big impact on the industry. People might wonder what you're talking about, but like it would have an impact across the entire entertainment industry and other markets as well. And finally, like the levels down from there are community influencers, like a reverend, a martial arts master, right? There's a community of followers or people who listen. And finally, your personal influencers, like your friends and family. And so each of them has a varying impact. And influence is often contextual, meaning that if I wanted to start a podcast, you'd have a lot more influence on me than if I needed heart surgery. I'm less likely to come to you for that. That's a that's a very smart distinction. So mm-hmm. I just want you to know <laughs> we're not going to help you. And I love the idea of of influencers not being the number of people on on TikTok or Instagram because that's my daughter's view, who's eleven, and mm-hmm. I try to work with her because she always asks, "Who's the most uh, influential person or the, the most famous person you've had on the show?" And it's like it depends. Like, are, are you talking? We've had some really great behavioral scientists. We've had some really great authors. We've had other. So mm-hmm. it just depends on what context it is. You also in the book talk about. Uh, I think you give a great example of if you're trying to get your child into like the the, the premium daycare setup. Yeah. It's like you don't need Mark Zuckerberg, you know, to yeah. help you with that, right? He's not going to help. He might be a really cool, you know, cocktail party pal. But that's not actually the kind of influence that you need to kind of get on with your life. Can you talk a little bit about parsing out and and sort of connecting to the sorts of influence that you want or need in your life? So uh, is it okay if we take like a slight step back? Because I think absolutely, the, I think the question is first of all, why would we even want influence? Because it used to be like Kurt mentioned, uh, power. We used to strive for power. And the reason is that it's no longer acceptable to try and control people, right? People who really try to do that nowadays get called out and it becomes an issue and they lose their jobs or companies and all these things. But fundamentally, we still want to produce results. There are things that all of us care care about that we want to accomplish. That could be losing weight. It could be, like you said, Tim, getting our kids into a school. It could be starting a grassroots social movement that could affect the ability for people to vote. And that's regardless of where you stand on any issue. Everybody wants the ability to impact things. Now, there's this weird perception, mostly probably from social media, that more followers or higher status in in quote-unquote influence is better. But that actually has no respect for what you actually want to accomplish. (laughs) So if I'm trying to sell a book, for example, which I'd rather a person who has, I don't know, 100,000 followers that are book enthusiasts than... 2 million that just care about fashion because they're not going to want what I am talking about. So I want to contextualize things. And so there's this idea like, oh, if I only met Richard Branson or Oprah or any of these people, then I'll be able to accomplish what I want. But the fact is that their staff is probably better suited to help you than they are. I would much rather know the head of Sir uh, Sir Richard Branson's nonprofit if I actually wanted to do something to create social impact because Branson is already so inundated that he's never going to answer one of my emails anyway, even if I knew him. Mm-hmm. And so the key isn't knowing the most important person. It's about having a meaningful relationship with the people who can impact what matters to you. So I'm going to quote from your book. 
So in, in the book, you say the fundamental element that defines the quality of our lives is the people that we surround ourselves with and the conversations that we have with them. Mm-hmm. So help us understand why it's that quality of the people that we have in our lives and the conversations. Why is that so important? Uh, so I think let, let's break this down into two different parts. So the first is I'd, when I was looking into all this stuff, I came across this. I think it's kind of become famous now, a study by these two guys, Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler. And uh, judging by the fact that both of you are nodding your heads, I'm assuming you've talked about this in previous episodes, but essentially they were curious about the obesity epidemic of the 2000s. And did obesity spread as a pandemic like coronavirus from person to person or as a percentage of the population? And the long story short is they found that it spreads from person to person. And if you have a friend who's obese, your chances increase by 45%. Their friends have a, sorry, your friends who don't know them have a 20% increased chance and their friends have a 5% increased chance. And this kind of effect is true for happiness, marriage and divorce rates, smoking habits, so on. Almost the identical model was kind of shown, uh, I think it was like Nike Run Club, that if Kurt and I were connected on it and he ran an extra mile, I would run like an extra 0.6 miles. <laughs> like it would, I don't exactly remember, it was research out of MIT. But it shouldn't be surprising that human behavior is contagious, right? We go to a meal with somebody who's eating a lot, we'll eat more. We go hang out with people who exercise a lot, we'll exercise more. It's just the nature of of our behavior. And so I believe that the fundamental element is defined by the people we surround ourselves with because whatever habits they have are going to be contagious to us and vice versa. And so I made it a point of my life to surround myself with the people who inspire me, the people who accomplish things that I really care about. So Tim and Kurt, you two focus on sharing knowledge that can have a positive impact on people's lives. And not just opinions, but things that are backed with science. Mm -hmm. Now, that's something that really inspires me, that I care about. I want more people like you in my life, because then we can really explore those topics and hopefully have a greater impact. Now, the second part of it is, is that it doesn't just matter that you bring people together that are inspiring to you. You need to have the context, right? So, you know, I I was doing these salons and dinner parties and stuff, and my hunches will talk about that at some point. But at at the salons I used to do, we would essentially just have a cocktail party. People would drink. And so the conversation was (laughs) silliness, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. That's fun. But at a certain point, somebody called me out and said, how could you assemble such interesting people and then just get them drunk? You have an obligation to do more. Mm. And so I started a series. Yeah. yeah. The worst part. I mean, that that, that feels like a, a weight on you to kind of put that on you. And, and I'm, I'm super happy to get feedback. Like I, I actually yeah. didn't bother me at all. Although I did respond by saying, Hey, totally love the feedback. You're absolutely right. Can you just not also include everybody at my company? <laughs> <laughs> On the email? <laughs> yeah. That, that, that wasn't the only time he did it. He did it again. It was really funny. Uh, so, uh, I, I think I got an email from my assistant when I came out being like, ouch. Uh, (laughs) uh, so the point though is that we then switched to a model where we'd invite like 60 to 100 people and then we'd surprise them with three real thought leaders and they would present ideas or there'll be performances so it might be bill nye the science guy it could be one of the roots performing right and what ended up happening was we fundamentally switched the conversation suddenly it wasn't about just relaxing having fun drinking and you know maybe flirting with somebody back when I was single, but it was about actually exploring ideas that could have an impact on our culture. And so 
you can change your life, not by just meeting new people, but by having a different conversation with those that you know. Because we all tend to fall into like these very specific conversational patterns. And all we really need to do is just say something different and you'll get a different result. And that's a kind of crazy thing. You can literally change the quality of your life by saying, instead of, oh, what do you want to do tonight? Let's go do a parkour class. I don't know. (laughs) Rather than let's go see a movie. And your life will be fundamentally different if you keep doing things like that. You've used the word curate uh, mm-hmm. in, in the book, you use, you, that you're curating the people around you. How do you do that? What, what's a good way to think about curating the people around you? So it, I think it might be helpful for the listeners to know the, about the dinner series I run so that they have... That's, have, that's great. Actually, that's a great place to start. Yeah. So when I was 28, I was kind of like the stereotypical poster child for not living up to your potential. And uh, I went to a seminar and I came across these ideas. I said, okay, if human behavior is contagious, I need to figure out how to surround myself with the top people in whatever it is that I cared about. And so I developed a bunch of behavioral models and prove them or to kind of test them, I, I created a secret dining experience where 12 people are invited, but they're not allowed to talk about what they do and they can't even give their last names. They then cook dinner together. And when they sit down to eat, everybody gets to guess what everybody else does. And then once we're done with our silly guesses, like you're a pilot for Delta Airlines or you know, you're a professional juggler, then they reveal who they are. And you find out that one is like a Nobel laureate, the other is an eight-time Olympic medalist, and another is the editor-in-chief of a magazine, and so on and so forth. And so I've hosted over 2,000 guests, ranging from celebrities and musicians to even the occasional member of royal family. And it's been 227 dinners in 10 cities in three countries. But what's really come out of it is a profound understanding of what connects people and allows them to engage regardless of their level of, let's say, influence or status or celebrity. And what I'm really proud of in this is that I focused on ways that do that that's reproducible. Because I didn't come from like, a billionaire family. My parents aren't celebrities. My parents are immigrants. I mean, my father did fine. We weren't like poor or anything, but I didn't grow up with like, you know, celebrities all around us or anything like that. You weren't in the private school rubbing elbows with all the other rich kids. And I I wasn't a private school actually uh, in high school. And, but it, it wasn't that kind of school. (laughs) It wasn't in the Hamptons, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I'm sure they all had money. We were probably the poorest family in the school by that standard. But uh, I didn't really hang out with any of them. I was kind of the odd kid out because I was really into science and technology back then. And <laughs> in the 90s, that was not cool, right? Like, it's pre-contemporary like, internet. Uh, there was no iPhones. So what I really looked at is how do any of us, regardless of our background, the amount of money we have, whatever it is, how do we connect with anybody that's important to us? And so when I look at curation, I look at how do we get the people that should be meeting each other that you would love to know around us? And kind of like a great museum curator puts up paintings, I want to pick people. So how do you, so where I think my listeners are going is going, all right, you're talking about these dinners with Nobel laureates and, you know, editors of world famous magazines and Olympians and all of these and they're going, there is no way that I can go out and, you know, curate any of those people to be in my circle of friends. 
And yet, mm-hmm. as you met, just mentioned, you you didn't necessarily come from having that the, those connections to begin with. So, no, I, I didn't at all. Yeah. So how do you do? I mean, so and granted, it, it may not be necessary, as we talked about earlier, that global and industry and community mm-hmm. might just be trying to get, hey, you're this, the superintendent of your schools, you know, to, to be within there. Even those for some people f- may feel way out of reach. So how do you go about getting those people and bringing them into that that community of yours? Uh, so I think that you actually said an important word there, which is community. So my objective isn't just to know somebody, right? It's really hard to maintain a lot of relationships in a meaningful way mm-hmm. when they're disparate from each other, right? When If I happen to know you, Kurt, and then I happen to know Tim separate, and I never interact with both of you at the same time, it's much harder to maintain those relationships than if we all hang out or if you're all part of the same community. For some people, it's their church or their gym or whatever it is. And so my objective is to, over the long term, develop and grow relationships. So when I did my first dinner, the guests that were there were not particularly the most impressive people in the world. In, in the time since, they've gone on to become more impressive because it's been 11, 12 years. But I did it with the most impressive people that I knew. And so one owned a very popular hair salon, right? Now, that could be your hairstylist. Maybe not yours, Kurt, but Tim's. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's all relevant. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not yours either, Tim, so just don't even go there. <laughs> I think everybody who's listening to this is now Googling photos of the two of you. <laughs> oh, no, they know. Yeah, they they're, should. They're listeners, they, they know. <laughs> so, and like somebody who worked on decently sized real estate deals, But the most important thing was that I didn't just stop after doing it once. It was a few months later, I did it again and again and again. I kept collecting people and inviting them. And by about the 30th dinner, I started getting really, maybe not even 30th, by like the fifth dinner, I started getting really impressive people. By like the 10th or 12th dinner, I had like the writers of The Daily Show and, you know, like all these kind of super interesting, some executives at Google and all that. But by the 30th dinner, the, or like the 25th, the New York Times had heard about it and asked to cover it. And once I had this, the credibility of the New York Times, it was gangbusters at that point. Like, now that was 2013, probably like year four. I mean, it's been, we just never stopped and we kept optimizing. But here's some basics. The first thing is, if you want to connect with highly influential people, you have to understand that everybody's after something from them. And so asking them for coffee or something isn't going to work. It's actually kind of arrogant and to think that, oh, wow, you are so important that they'll stop what they're doing to go have coffee with you. <laughs> now, it might work if you have a background of background relationship, like you were part of the same fraternity or sorority or something like that, because then there's already a point of contact that, and trust, right? There's a halo effect. But if that's not the case, there's kind of like three or four things that you can really do. The first is that since everybody's after something, we want to figure out how to give them something without any expectation in return. We want to be generous. I don't mean product. We don't value the things that we're given in general. I mean generous with knowledge or opportunities or access to people, things like that. Mm-hmm. Right? It really lowers people's defenses. And especially if, there's, if we can do it in a way that it doesn't feel like we're after something. You could want something, that's fine. But the key is benevolence, that you have their best interests at heart. The second thing, which nobody really thinks about, is novelty. You see, the most influential people in our culture don't need another casino-themed fundraiser to attend. (laughs) Nobody wants another Zoom meeting. 
on their calendar or schedule. So what can we do that stands out? Now, what I did was I created this dinner, right? It's a different novel format. You don't know who's going to be there. You can't ask who's going to be there. You can't even talk about you, but it's super novel format. You're going to cook and then you're going to play a game. And I could tell you everything that'll happen and it won't matter because it's experiential in nature. It turns out that there's a section of the brain called the SNVTA. It's the major novelty center of the brain. And when it's triggered, it responds relative to how novel something is and entices us to explore and understand it. Meaning that the more novel something is, the more you want to engage with it. So it literally draws people out to want to connect with you. But on top of that, it also triggers the memory center of the brain, right? The midbrain brain dopamine system. And as a result, everything becomes more memorable from the people, the smells, the taste, not just the novel thing. You'll be more memorable. And so that's a pretty critical element. The third characteristic we talked about is curation. Everybody expects the most influential people in our culture to be spending their time with other influential people. And they don't. They spend almost all their time with their admin. (laughs) (laughs) So it's if you could curate an environment with other influential people, they'll go far out of their way for it. Then the final thing is, and this one's really hard, so it's not a requirement at all. Arguably the most desired human emotion is uh, awe or wonder. It's that moment where suddenly your perspective of the universe shifts, right? You held your child for the first time and the universe disappears around you, or you discover how big the universe is and you're like, holy cow, what's going on here? It doesn't make any sense. And In those moments, people feel more generous and more connected. And it's a great context to build a relationship from. It also makes you unforgettable. So when I bring up these elements, you'll notice that almost nobody provides all of them, right? So like the most premier experience in the world that you can have as far as events is probably something like a Davos. It's where world leaders come together to discuss topics and uh, you'll, if you're lucky, you'll bump into Bill Gates standing in the snow with Andrea Merkels or something. Who even knows what, right? <laughs> it's not a particularly pleasant environment. It's the winter. It's slushy. I've never gone, uh, which clearly means it's not that great. No. Well, and it's <laughs> expensive. It's it's two hundred and fifty thousand plus for a company, and so on. So it's like an a crazy amount of money. But if you notice, they really only offer one out of the four characteristics, which is curation right? Mm-hmm. With, because nobody actually really wants to hear those talks. They're not like novel. They might be interesting, right? So there's kind of like an element that some people want to hear them, but you're mostly going for the other people that are there, which kind of like a, a step down in terms of curation is TED. But TED actually adds novelty, right? So they'll have wondrous talks and like the first demo of the ebook and like CD player and stuff, like all that kind of stuff was a TED in 1984. And so if you can actually you'll notice people pay $10,000 and they always sell out. And that's because they combine more of the characteristics. You'd also argue that TED is a generous experience. It's a nonprofit. It's about bringing people together and starting conversations and doing all these other things. So when it comes to you, the question is, what can you do? So uh, Tim and Kurt, you provide a podcast, right? That allows you to connect with people, but it's fundamentally generous. You have a novel, especially when you started this, a novel approach around behavioral science. And Hopefully it's well curated. Maybe some people don't like me as a guest, but (laughs) we think we think it's well curated. They're going to suffer. They'll just have to suffer. Suffer Yeah, they'll just Uh, just have our our fast forward. But no, I'm sure our guests are going to love love this. So the uh, the the question then becomes: What is it that you can do that's novel, well curated, 
and understand that the first time you do it, it's going to mess up. You're going to mess up and it's going to be like a train wreck. My first dinner, people, the air conditioner broke and people were literally sweating while like chopping salad. It was like they had to remove layers. It was awkward. It kind of started by smelling bad in there. It was not a pleasant experience. Was this in New York City? In, in yeah. A, in a high rise like apartment? August in New York. Oh, and wow. it was like with a broken air conditioner in August. I think it was August. So the point of it is that it's uh, you, whatever it is that you do, you'll notice that it has this clear community aspect. We're bringing people together and we're doing it in a novel way. And what I mean by novel is if you like knitting, start a knitting group. If you like running, run. If you like board games, do a board game night and then switch things up so that there's novel aspects. Maybe each week somebody has to, uh, each guest gets to bring their own board game and people vote on which one to play. And then you find out who the influential people are who really love board games and you invite them. But whatever it is, it has to be your own thing, right? Because by the time you do the fifth one, if it's not something you actually care about, you are going to hate it. And then you're not going to be able to build a community or a sense of belonging for people. And you're not gonna have a method to connect with people. Absolutely. I, I wanted to, uh, one of the things that struck me that I really loved, speaking of novelty, my brain just lit up when I got to the survival paradox like this. And this is something yeah. that has fascinated me for a long time. It's like, we need community. We need it. We need it. We need it. At the same time, we hate being taken advantage of. We don't yeah. like being, we don't like being perceived as gullible. And, uh, and so could you just talk a little bit about the survival paradox and how do we deal with it? Yeah, it's. I think it's really interesting. So human beings are one of the rare species that actually, not rare, but uh, one of the species that has a community format, right? There's turtles, you know, they, they can just, they're born, they survive on their own, squid, do their own thing. And <laughs> never, never thought about squid, actually, but I guess they are pretty independent, aren't they? I, I, from, I saw that documentary, when my squid teacher, whatever it was. My, oh, my, my octopus teacher. Uh, sorry, not squid. Yes, it's octopus. My <laughs> which, octopus. which for everybody watch it. It it sounds kind of weird to begin with. It is beautiful. It is inspiring. It is just fascinating. Anyway, go yeah. on. Uh, I agree. Uh, so the problem is that to trust means fundamentally to agree to be vulnerable or to put yourself in a vulnerable state, right? And the fact is that that's not really from a, let's call it a survival perspective, such a great idea, right? If from a survival perspective, we're probably best off being like turtles locked in a safe space and only coming out when we need something else that we need to survive. So the question is, why on earth would we risk being around other people? And when researchers looked at this, they, they tested to see if a mother who had recently given birth could collect enough calories to support both her and her offspring. And the problem is that you probably can't both protect your offspring and also provide enough food for the two of you at the same time. And the reason is that human beings are kind of essentially born prematurely, right? And other species, they can go run within minutes of birth if a baby fawn is born. But human beings are kind of useless until they're teens. And even then, if any of you have kids, you'd probably argue they're useless longer. Pretty pretty much, yeah. Yeah, much, much, much longer. Useless. Yeah. <laughs> so that means that we have to make a decision, either die out from lack of resources or figure out a way to select if somebody is going to hurt us or not, or take advantage of, of, of us or not. And so we developed trust. We developed this idea that there are those that we can be vulnerable around and those that are not. Unfortunately, it's not a perfect system, right? People are heartbroken, stolen from, like they're terrible situations that 
occur. So, but the problem is that if we don't trust at all, we're dead as a species. And if we trust the wrong person, then we're also kind of screwed and probably not going to survive. But on average, we're pretty decent at understanding when to trust and when not to. And by trust, it allows us to form communities and specialized skills and work together. And right, we have trust in our money, which means that when I give you a dollar, you're not worried that it's not worth anything and that you're not going to be able to eat. And you trust that if we sign a contract, I'll follow through with the contract. And because of that, we've been able to progress and survive and spread across the planet. But fundamentally, trust then has this really interesting characteristic that it's a perceived level of that I can allow myself to be vulnerable. And most people, including myself, until I started researching this book, didn't even understand what trust is made out of and how it works and how we develop it. Well, let's expand upon that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, sure. So uh, do we want to dive into what it's made out of or how to trigger it? Well, I'm looking at the time and I'm thinking I'd like to I'd like to see what it's made of first because I, I absolutely want to get to made of. Okay. Uh, yeah, I want to get to music too. I want to have a little bit of time left to talk about music. Okay, for sure. More than just answer is Spotify. That, yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> so uh, most researchers agree that trust is made out of three things. Some say four, but it's it depends how you tease things out. I'm in the three camp and they would argue that it's made of, of competence, your ability to do something, honesty or integrity, right? Your truthfulness. And the third is benevolence. You have my best interest at heart. But what's interesting is that not all three are equally weighted. And so if one day I come in and do a presentation and I bomb, people don't go, I can't trust John. He's completely incompetent. Hopefully. <laughs> They'll probably say, oh, he probably had a bad day, right? And it's, you know, COVID, people are exhausted. Next time, they'll be great. But if Kurt found out that one of his friends lied to him, right, that's a breach in honesty, you would then doubt everything they have said and everything they probably say moving forward. But there is an interesting loophole, and it works like this. Tim and I are walking down the street, and I ask Tim, do you mind if we stop by a friend's house? And he goes, sure. And when we walk in, 40 of his closest friends jump out and scream, surprise! <laughs> now, it would be super strange if Tim turned to me and said, John, I can't trust you anymore. You just lied to me. Yeah, yeah. And the reason is that we are actually accepting of lies for benevolent reasons. Not in every case, but just as a generality. Now, if you found out that your doctor was getting kickbacks for doing surgery on you, <laughs> you would be super pissed, and you should be, because that's a breach in benevolence. Yeah. So it turns out that we value benevolence above honesty and honesty above competence, which means that if we want people to trust us, we need to lead with benevolence. We need to show that we have their best interests at heart. We need to demonstrate that we are honest and have integrity. And frankly, competence can increase over time. So if you know somebody is incredibly honest and incredibly benevolent, and they're improving, you're like, okay with that. You're like, okay, I, that, that's fine. Uh, and in fact, I remember reading about the Navy SEAL selection process. They rank things on what is it? Uh, skill and team orientation. So let's call it kind of benevolence as team orientation and skill as competence. And they would generally rather somebody who is incredibly team oriented with lower skill because they can always upskill versus somebody who is low team orientation, but incredibly skilled because those people are going to be arrogant and it's going to be tough for the team. Well, and that that plays out in many organizations too when in the hiring process. Are, are they a fit with the organization? Are they going to 
have the best interests and work together and, and have those as opposed to being you're the best at the skill level of this. Mm-hmm. And, and I know lots of organizations that I've worked with have that same mentality about their hiring process. And there's some negatives about that, about, you know, being uh, the people that we, we tend to feel are benevolent and are look like us and talk like us in various different yeah, pieces. Yeah. And you can go oh, down yeah. that path, but, yeah. but there are, there are other factors, but that, that is indeed the, the case is that you can probably, you can upskill people much more mm-hmm. than you can upskill their benevolence level, right? That the, if they're yeah, not yeah, like that, sure. they're not going to be able to, to, to shift that very quickly. Empathy is much harder to teach than how to do a better PowerPoint. Exactly. Right? Like, However, PowerPoints are difficult. I mean, I have to say. Yeah. It's like pushing that button really gets it. <laughs> I, will, I will do the two-second version explanation of how to build trust if you'd like. Please. And a lot of people, or in, in the business world, it's common to try to win people over through gifts or dinners and things like that. And uh, that stuff generally doesn't work. In fact, people often hate business dinners. You're stuck between two people you don't really want to talk to. You're like, this isn't worth the food being stuck next to them. I can afford my own meal. But what you, what we ended up realizing is that the exact opposite works. And it's called the Ikea effect. And it states that we disproportionately care about our Ikea furniture because we had to assemble it. So it turns out that anything we put effort into, we care about more. And that includes people. So that's why at the influencers dinner, we cook together or at any of our events, we'll generally have like a hands-on experience. That could even be a game that you play together just so that we can get uh, you and your, your, your new friends, let's call them, to feel engaged in one another and develop a meaningful relationship. I love that. I, I do love that. And I, I love that experience. So you, based on our experience through influencers, you really love music. You care a lot about musicians and, and the, the sounds that they make. What do, what's on your playlist? Uh, you're going to laugh so hard. Uh, I've been listening to Pop Goes Classical. I, I walked in on my wife watching. That is laughable. Yeah, right? Uh, so I walked in on my wife watching Bridgerton. Okay. And this is the show that when uh, Ashton Kutcher walked in on Mila Kunis watching it, he thought she was watching pornography, right? It's like, oh, I got to check this it's out. Not, it's like uh, Shonda Land, you know, Shonda Rhimes. Uh, it's her new show on Netflix. Everybody's super attractive. I walk in and I hear like, wow, this music played on violin. And it was it was essentially like some pop song being played on Ariana Grande. That's what it was on violin. I was like, this is so good. What is it? And then I found all this on <laughs> I found this all on uh, Spotify on a playlist. And so like I I can't have words when I'm writing. I need just sound. So I either listen to John Williams, the great film composer. I listened to Pop Goes, <laughs> Pop Goes <laughs> Classic. Yeah, you said it. You 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 own it, man. You own it. Yeah. It's gonna be in the it's gonna be in the show notes, so people are going to be able yes. to go and click and find it themselves. And you'll get to thank me for the infinite loop that you put this this music on. So, so, so John Williams, so assuming that the music that you listen to when you work needs to be without any lyrics. Mm-hmm. It's really any... hard to write when I'm singing along. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is difficult. So you're asking besides that? What I... Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. So I grew up on like, you know, 90s hip hop, everything from like Tribe Called Quest and Biggie to, you know, also all like the super cheesy pop mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I, I can't, I can't hide the fact that I love it. 
you know, it's, it's so fun. And I'm fortunate enough, like I've gotten to host members of Maroon 5 and 98 Degrees and, uh, you know, like all of them, like that whole, you yep. know, not that those are, I guess technically they're both boy bands, but one of them's like a band band and the other was a boy band. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm like, like, I just like pop fun music is the truth. Great. Well, we know we know that the the music that you had in your life that you loved when you were at that formative stage is the ones that you we tend to yeah. fall back on. And Tim, we've talked about this with lots of different different people. So, John, we could talk with you for hours, and I, you know, at some point we'll have you back on, and we can we can just jam on, you know, life in general and and various other pieces. But thank you. This has been. You said you were looking forward to this. Tim and I have been looking forward to this for months, and and it did not. This was not the the point of meeting your hero and then you know being disappointed. This is definitely oh. you have you've you've raised the bar. We we interviewed Dessa a few weeks ago, who is one of my my pop heroes, and and it was like she raised the bar for me. So this was all good. So there you there you go. Well, thank you for having me on. This is an absolute treat, uh, Tim and Kurt. You're super cool and i really appreciate getting to chat and this is fun so thank you welcome to our grooving session where tim and i groove on what we learned from our discussion with john have a free-flowing conversation and talk about whatever else comes into our influential brains that was a that was a that was a, like a little softball one i'm sorry i didn't really think too much on that but man totally. it was you know and you know every time you do that because yep. i know that it's impromptu that i'm always waiting i'm always on sort of on edge and <laughs> that was a softball but that's okay that, it, it, so it, it's uh, we can we, let's let's redo it i'll go back i can think of no, you know no, no. spend hours thinking about what the perfect you know adjective is so no let's just start let's just start talking about john and power versus influence power versus influence so this was interesting yeah. right with as john said with power i'm controlling something with influence i'm guiding it i thought that was really kind of key to yeah. the way that he defines power versus influence so just say that again just john said with power i'm controlling something with influence i'm guiding it there is a big difference in those two right mm -hmm. i think that it's really important that john sees influence as it's not without the idea that it's like persuasion, like, you know, Cialdini talks about persuasion. We want to persuade people like we need to persuade people. We're it's not just about our viewpoint, but if we're in a job, we kind of have to persuade the, the people who are reporting to us that doing this particular project is a good idea. We need mm -hmm. to have good rationale. We need to have, we need to use the right words. We've got all kinds of things that go into that. That's okay. Influence, persuasion, those things are okay to do. Power as the control thing is less appealing to me. Yeah. Just, I just want, I just want to say that. And in, in doing some, uh, you know, some research on this, Mary was working on this and, and uh, our, our, our research associate, Mary, and, and she found this quote from Brene Brown that I thought was pretty cool that really, I, I think, really ties into this. Not, not, it's, not dove, it's not like a dovetail perfect, but it fits really nicely where, where Brene said, daring and transformative leaders share power with, empower people to, and inspire people to develop power within. Like, you know, 
Like there's this real sense of good leaders aren't controlling, they're influencing. Really, yeah, they're they're not using that power in as a as a uh, a baton to to beat you, right? They're right. influence you to guide you to it. And of yeah. course, Mary can come up with a Brene Brown quote at any point for almost anything. <laughs> I so know she is she is Captain Brene Brown. That's, yes, that is that is, sure. that is that is fantastic. But but this this was a key thing in the conversation with John for me is the really lovely way that he talks about guiding that influences a guiding factor, and I think it's underutilized in our world. I think it's a really good way of positioning or framing influence, right? It's it's a guide to helping people go where they want to go and and get what they want to get. And so, all right, what else do we want to chat about? How about uh, curation was a really cool thing, but the, the curation part links into a part that I think really means a lot to us, and that is start small and keep collecting. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so this this was the piece, right? This was the element with John where people, like he goes, people just assume that I knew all these people in different pieces, and he didn't. He started this the influencers dinner with his friends. Yes, his hairdresser and you know other people that he knew, people that were part of his sphere of influence right there. But then he kept at it. I love that little yes. quote that he said. You know, I just didn't stop. I was, you know, the most most important thing was that I didn't just stop after doing it once. It was a few months later. I did it again and again and again. I kept collecting people and inviting them. And by about the twelfth dinner, I was starting to get really impressive people coming in and. I, I 12, think 12 dinners, 12 not, dinners, not, not the first, not the second, not the third, not the fourth. 12. Di- you've got to be pretty committed to get to 12. Yeah. And, and I think about this from the perspective of behavioral groups, right? So if we look back on the first people that we interviewed, I look and go, yeah, we weren't interviewing Gary Latham's and, you John know, Barge, Max Bazerman's no. or any of those folks. It was the people that were within our sphere of influence and that we knew and that it just this idea of continually consistency matters, right? That this is a piece of just being able to make sure that you continue to expand that that sphere of influence that you have. And I think that's really key. It really is. And I'm so glad that we kept with it. And that we got beyond the first 12 because I'm embarrassed <laughs> to go back and listen to the first 12. To, well, I'm, I'm okay. I will, I will, I will preface this. I'm embarrassed about how horrible we were. I, yeah. You know, we had some really good, we had some decent guests in our first 12. I, I mean, I think we had some, some really cool conversations. Now were those people that were recognized uh, around the world and different pieces or within the behavioral science community? Probably not so much, but we had some really good conversations with folks, which I think was part of the evolution and how this works. And I think that's a key piece. And the other piece that I think is important from John's perspective uh, that he brings up, not necessarily from his perspective, was this this power of the network. So it it was this idea of creating this dinner. And it wasn't the same people coming back time and time again. It was who else can we invite and who would you want to bring to this? And so, you know, I think 
in in other conversations, I don't think we talked about this in the actual episode, but he talked about his hairdresser brought somebody else who knew somebody and then they brought somebody, you know, it's this power of, of plus one, the power of that plus one that keeps going. And I just want to put a challenge out to all of our listeners. Okay. 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 All right. So this is the, the idea here, this power of network. So if everybody listening to this episode would just get two more people, to listen to this podcast, right? Think about the power that that network would have. I mean, and then if those two people each got two more people to listen, and if those four people got two more people to listen, my God. We'd have like 26 people listening then. Oh, holy (laughs) Hannah. (laughs) I think we have a little more than that, but but there there is an element of this that is, we are influenced by those people who are closest to us. And yeah, the, the messenger is the message, right? Yeah. Right. It's the messenger and the message. And this idea that to get somebody to listen to a show, a, a podcast, or to come to a dinner, if I just get an advertisement about it or something, I'm less likely to do it. If I have a friend tell me, you should listen to this or you should go to this. I am much more likely to do it. You have influence over other people. And I think that's important. Yeah. And there's that sense of reciprocity where I'm on the hook. If, if you, if, if you call me up and say, Tim, you should check this out. If I don't, then I'm failing in, in our friendship. Mm -hmm. And, and so I'm on the hook to actually, actually, you know, get something done. So yeah. What, it, what it else? One more thing on this, and this I'll go back again into, I think, what John was doing is he didn't just invite people from one industry. He didn't just invite people that were all very similar. He had it. He curated the people that came yes. and brought in different perspectives and different viewpoints. So maybe talking to people that you wouldn't that wouldn't normally hang out in your social circles. And so the you know, executive from Google gets to talk to an Olympian who gets to talk to a behavioral scientist who gets to talk to a musician. And there's a convergence of that. And I think one of the things that I love about what we've been able to do with behavioral grooves, not to make this all about us, but we, we've expanded, we, we've talked to these accidental behavioral scientists, Yeah, right? We bring in practitioners and academics and authors. We talk to nonprofit leaders. We talk to primatologists. We talk to economists. I mean, we talk to a variety. We talked to frickin' Dessa, you know? So, <laughs> so I'm hoping that we're bringing different viewpoints into the conversation, which is one of the things that hopefully we're curating for people listening is a wide variety of thoughts and ideas around behavioral science, not just the researchers that are doing the thing. Not that the researchers aren't bad. And that is a key piece of, of who we want to talk to. It's central, central to us, Mm -hmm. but it's also the, that curation is not a calculation. We're not curating based on, Oh, let's see if we could get this guest, then they could refer us to this guest and that would get us, blah, you know, it's our curiosity and it's our general desire to, to connect with people that is really the basis for the curating that we're doing. Yeah, I, I agree. 
maybe we need to be more purposeful. Calculative? Mm. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Oh, right. <laughs> so <laughs> mm. things that make you go. Hmm. Anyway. Things, uh, what else? Uh, what else should we should we groove on with uh, with John? I don't know. Maybe maybe context. <laughs> yes. Yes. Because it, it's one of our favorite topics, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But John had spoke about it in a really nice way. He just said, it doesn't matter that you bring people together that are inspiring to you. You need to have the context right. You need yeah. to have the context right because context makes a big difference how we respond to each other, how we act. And, right. and he demonstrated this by in the early dinners by not allowing them to say their last name or what they did. Mm-hmm. Well, I think he still does that in dinners, right? When they're in yeah. person. Yeah. But you can't, so you take the, I'm going to identify you by your last name or what you do. And it was about making conversation while you're making dinner. I love the fact that he had all these dinners where people just made dinner for him too. Just yeah. FYI. Love that. Love that. But he created a context where he took some of the sparkle out of it and the celebrity out of it and just said, let's just be humans here. And mm-hmm. so he, he created a context where people could interact with each other just on a human basis. And that led to real meaningful relationships, not fan relationships with celebrities. Yeah. Well, and I think the other part of context that he talks about is this idea that we don't need to always have that high status or somebody who is well-known around the world to have this influence, this idea of if I'm selling a book, do I go out on that podcast that has millions of listeners, but nobody's really going to be caring about this, the topic that the book is going to address because it's 2 million people who are worried about what the Kardashians are wearing, right? Versus this, versus going on a podcast that has you know, 20,000 listeners, that that is very much what they are coming to listen to that podcast. So so the influence of 2 million versus 20,000, you would go, oh, well, the 2 million is much more influential. But no, it's the context within what you're trying to do and achieve. And it goes back to, I think, to some of the first pieces that he talked about. Hey, if you're trying to get your kid into a private school, Jeff Bezos being, you know, isn't going to be as influential- yeah, as knowing somebody that's on the board of that private school. So yeah, uh, there was one other thing uh, in this that is sort of the context of the way we think about things. He said that we shouldn't underestimate the impact of small changes mm. and the sort of small influences, right? So we can have a sphere of influence that's relatively modest in the bigger picture of the world. And I recently had a conversation with a friend of mine who's a musician, and she has had some really interesting successes. She's toured Europe, I think a dozen times, and she draws crowds in Europe to the tune of like 100 to 200 people at a time, Mm. not 2000 people at a time. But she has sort of a loyal fan base and she's feeling like she's a failure. But really, Mm. she has changed the lives of these people, uh, you know, at one or 200 at a time in a really positive way. The songs that she's written, the way that she delivers them has had a positive influence on those those folks. And I think that's worth celebrating the success of that and saying that the context in which she is performing, the context in which she delivers, it all works for those people. She's influencing, she's guiding those people in a, in a really positive way. There's an interesting piece, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about 
my own psyche. When I first started doing off on my own with the Lantern Group, we did a lot of team building programs. We did a lot of these, you know, working with uh, 30 people to hundreds and hundreds of people. And I would always get super upset um, with myself after the fact if there were a percentage of those people who I just didn't feel were engaged, who didn't get it. You know, I could have had 80% of everybody just fully engaged with what we're doing and getting it. But I go, I didn't get those 20% until I had this epiphany. And this epiphany was, you know what? I might have just changed how one person in that group felt about their work or about their coworkers or about being on this team that really made a difference in how they showed up and how they felt about showing up. And with that epiphany of saying, it doesn't matter if I get everybody, it matters if I get one. And I think that making that difference again to to your friend, I, all right, maybe she's not doing 2000 seat theaters, but man, for those 100 to 200 people that are there, she's making a difference. And yeah. Yeah. those I think are really key. And I, it's easy for us to look out and particularly in this world of social media and look at how successful everybody else is, right? How successful all our friends are, how successful, you know, Beyonce is and compare ourselves to them. And I think that's the wrong comparison. The, the, the comparison is, have I, have I impacted one person? Have I, have I made a difference in at least one per positive difference in at least one yeah. person's life? Yeah. That's that's an important message right now, uh, especially I think during still during the pandemic. I think we still need to be asking that question and framing it that way, Kurt. That's a really that's a meaningful, really meaningful perspective for us. Yeah, sorry to pontificate like I always do, but eh, that's how it goes. All right. <laughs> yes. So one of the things that I loved that John said that I want to talk a little bit about is he said that the fundamental element that defines the quality of our lives is the people that we surround ourselves with and the conversations that we have with them. And I just thought that was a piece that I'm going to take out of this in thinking about what does that mean for me? And I'm looking at what are the conversations I'm having and who are the people that I'm having them with? Oh, yeah. And I can tell you that the the piece about that that I think is really fascinating is that the conversations that you and I have and the people that we have those conversations with are some of the best conversations and some of the best people that we can have, not just on this podcast, but also just in general within the the behavioral science community and, and within our people who listen to the show and some of those conversations. And I compare those to some of the everyday work conversations that I have and the people that I'm dealing with there. And again, it's a different context, so I have to take yep. that in a different yes. way. But man, I would much rather spend my time in the conversations that we're having than the conversations that I have to have at work. I know. That's why that's why we need to get people subscribing to our Patreon page. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't have to have all the conversations that we don't want to have. Oh yeah. That would, that would be great. Okay. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about John sort of doesn't have a formula, but he's got some steps to making connections. Right. And it let's 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 just start by talking through reminding uh, listeners about what those are because it's actually pretty straightforward and pretty simple. And it starts with generosity. And John is absolutely that guy. He absolutely starts with this, not just an open heart, but an open hand. 
And of course, generosity is wonderful because it lowers people's defenses. Mm -hmm. And as Robert Cialdini has, you know, emphasized, this is the foundation of, of reciprocity. Yeah. Right. This is this is the human social connection that we have lived on for the last you know million plus years. Is if if I give you something to eat and it doesn't kill you, then you should give me something to eat that doesn't kill me. Right? <laughs> Maybe that's Maybe not exactly even tastes good, but you know there you go. No, I like and I love the idea of the reciprocity part and Cialdini and how that generosity comes in. It also made me think to Adam Grant this idea of givers and takers in his book, Give and Take, where he talks about givers, again, are the people that from his research were the, ended up having the most promotions and doing the best inside of business. They were also, on contrary, they were also the worst, but it was this idea of giving and giving within limits, right? It's not, you can't just be that fool that will, all right, can you do my homework for me? Sure, I'll do your homework. And can you do this? Can you do <laughs> right, that? right. But this idea of generosity, I think, ties in with being that giver person. And so not only is it going to help you become more influential and make these connections, that in and of itself lends itself to you being getting further in your career or in whatever endeavor that you're trying to do because you're building your network and people like people who are generous. And so yeah. I think that's yeah. a positive thing. Yeah. What's next? Uh, the second step was novelty. Now, now John made a big statement. I think he said that like the more novel something is, like the more we want to engage with it. And I think that th that could be overly misconstrued because mm. if, if you take something to you know, the infinite degree novelty just wears off on us, but, or, or it's not relevant. It still needs to be relevant to us. But the idea of, of creating uh, an experience that is different from everything else, right? This is the universal selling proposition, the USP that salespeople and marketers are looking for constantly. How can we differentiate ourselves? And John's step about novelty is an important reminder that we can do this in a, in the way that we influence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think your your point about not being so novel that it goes off. We just had a conversation with Matthew Wilcox uh, talking about this and this idea of familiar, but not right. There is this idea of of having something. So we like familiarity as humans, but we also are intrigued by something new or exciting or different. And that just being novel enough to differentiate ourselves, to to stand out from the crowd, right? If I wore a bright pink gorilla suit around, that would be novel. But I probably for the wouldn't. first day, for the first day, it would be novel. But by but the then, end of the week, <laughs> yeah. But if I but if instead I just I wore red shoes to a business meeting, all right. The, uh, Francesca Gino. Francesca Gino. That's that's novel. It sets it apart. It's it's close enough to what we you know the rest of it was was still business suit, but just those red shoes separated that. So I think there's some really interesting piece. The third piece, which I found is I think one of the the most relevant pieces of all of this, is this idea of curation. Mm -hmm. So this idea that we make sure you're bringing together people who will find each other interesting. We already talked a little bit about this, that this isn't about curating everybody along in the same same social group that they already know, is that you, this is maybe where some of the novelty comes in, bringing in some of those people that might not necessarily interact with the other people that are in the room to create some of that novelty. But it's idea of, hey, let's let's have this curated group of people together. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's like a mixtape, right? What what's a mixtape, Tim? I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, I, no, I I, right? I I I joke, but you're right. A mixtape. This idea of taking these songs and they're not all the same. That you know, we I, I don't know. Wait, I don't wait, know wait, you that, did this. That sounds like a playlist. Not a mixtape. Well, a mixtape for those <laughs> folks who don't know was an old form of a playlist, and it was you know recorded on a cassette tape that you could carry with you and hand to your friend or your <laughs> girlfriend and show them how much you cared because you made the special mix of these songs just for them, right? But I think that's it, right? It, the the best mixtapes were those ones that had some familiarity, but they also introduced you to something new, something novel. I remember I had a friend as I was getting my MBA, Tony Ditchburn, who is from Canada. And Tony made this mixtape. I, I forget, he named it something. But that mixtape introduced me. So it, it had some of my you know songs that I like, some of the Depeche Mode things that, that you know I, I already knew and liked. But it also had on there Cowboy Junkies. Oh, yeah. A couple different. I mean, I'd heard, you know, Cowboy Junkies with their cover of Lou Reed. uh, Yeah, from the from the Trinity Sessions. That was fantastic. Yeah. But there was other songs from the Trinity Sessions that were were on there. And I'm like, oh, my God, I fell in love with with the Cowboy Junkies. And then he he introduced me to one of my favorite all time bands ever, which is the Tragically Hip. Oh, I yeah? never heard of the Tragically Hip, and they're really? huge up in Canada. Well, I, at that point, no, this was right. So, th- but that was the first introduction that you had. That was the first introduction. This was back in 1990. So, so he curated a list of songs that made a very positive difference on you. Like the the this this group of songs actually influenced what you were listening to, what you were willing to listen to going forward. I think that's yeah. pretty cool. All right, so think about that. As a, is that a metaphor or an analogy? I can't, I never get those right. <laughs> I'm not sure where you're going, so I'm not sure which, which one it is. <laughs> to, to how we curate the people in our lives and how we curate those people that we have those conversations with that are going to be meaningful and influence that. So I think that would we be have an, a, an analogy. Do we have a, an analogy? So do we have a good mixtape of people, yeah. a good playlist of people in our lives? Anyway. And then he talks about awe and wonder, this idea of bringing a sense of wonder into the situation, into what we're doing and creating. And I like this idea because I think it's powerful. I think when we when we have that sense, as he said, it transforms those moments, right? It transforms those those conversations or those experiences that we have from kind of everyday things into something that we remember and we build on and we associate the people that are around us with that sense of awe and wonder. It's that beautiful sunset. It's that whatever it would be. And I also find it interesting because I think he said, these are hard to manufacture yes. and that yeah. it's not easy. And this is the one that in this thing, you don't have to have all four, but when you do, it's great. But this is always the one that seems hardest, at least from his perspective. And do we need, you brought up the sunset, do we need any more evidence that it is a natural part of our DNA? It is deeply connected to who we are, that the sunset creates a sense of awe and wonder in us instantly. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to set it up. We don't have to have anything artificial about it. It happens completely automatically, reflexively for for humans. And that does make it difficult. But wow, talk about memorable. Talk about vividness from a, 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 the memory perspective. 
if we can create that sense of awe and wonder and we can create the context, curate the right people, be generous in the way that we bring them together, awe and wonder is something that can naturally spring from that, from, from these groups. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. I think the last thing, and I don't think we can talk about this a, a, a lot. We don't need to talk about this a lot is just this idea of trust and trust is fundamental to building and maintaining relationships. And he, he, he made up this component about trust being made up of three different pieces, competence, truthful, yep. truthfulness, and benevolence. And I thought what was really interesting was this idea that he said they aren't all equally rated, that we're, we'll trust people even if they're maybe not as competent as we would like them to be, right? They mess, yeah. you mess up, that's okay, right? And even some of the truth, truthfulness will forgive, right? Uh, you lied to me, but it was about this birthday, surprise birthday party that he brings up. Oh yeah, that's a great example. Yeah. But, and, and you forgive that and you're going, I'm all right, I still like you as a person and, and various different things. And I actually still trust you on that. But it's this idea of benevolence, this idea that if you are doing something spiteful or to hurt me or without my best interest it, at heart, that's really hard to overcome. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. So folks, hang in there. We're going to come back. Kurt has got a bonus track for us to summarize this episode and to offer a cool new groove idea that will be awe-inspiring. So hang on. This is Kurt with this week's bonus track and groove idea for the week. First, it was such a pleasure having John as a guest. He truly is one of the nicest, most generous people I've met, and I'm grateful for him for coming on our show. Second, the ideas that we discussed are grounded in behavioral science, but applicable to all of us. And I find that wonderful. Influence isn't about the number of followers that you have on Instagram or the status of the people that you know. As John says, it is the ability to impact a person or outcome. We want people to respect us. We want to do things with our lives when we all want to make a difference in the world. And that is why influence is important. But John brings up a huge point, both in his book and on the show, that influence isn't always about knowing those with celebrity or big titles, that we often exert more influence in our local communities. That is where we can drive the biggest change and make the most difference. John states in the book and on the show that the fundamental element that defines the quality of our lives is the people that we surround ourselves with and the conversations that we have with them. Think about that for a minute. This is a concept that we find vital. Our lives are defined by the conversations that we have and who we have them with. So make sure that you are having good conversations with cool and interesting people. We went on to talk about how John went from small dinners with mostly friends to dinners with Nobel laureates and world-renowned actors and famous people. He talks about not quitting at just one, but keep on going. He outlines the four key aspects of building those connections. First, be generous. It lowers people's defenses. Second, add novelty to your conversation. He says the more novel something is, the more you want to engage with it. Third, curation. Make sure you are bringing people together who will find each other interesting. And finally, if you can, create a sense of awe or wonder. If you can do that, as John says, it makes you unforgettable. 
The conversation then meandered to trust. Trust is essential to relationships. John described three tenets of trust, competence, truthfulness, and benevolence, with the most important one being benevolence. We can forgive or overlook faults in competence or even truthfulness, but if we feel that someone is being spiteful or acting without your best interest in mind, we find that hard to let go. John frames it beautifully when he says, quote, it turns out that we value benevolence above honesty and honesty above competence, which means that if we want people to trust us, we need to lead with benevolence and we need to show that we have their best interests at heart. Okay, now for the groove idea for the week. Let's take a look at the conversations we are having. What are those conversations about and who are we having them with? Look back at your week and note the different conversations that you've had and who they were with. Now, here's the groove idea. Are the conversations that you're having the ones that you want to have? And are they with the people that you want to be having them with? If not, what can you do to change that? As always, we would love to hear what you came up with. If you like what we do here, please tell a friend. You can also check out episode 12 with Silky Britton, where we discuss influence inside of organizations. It might give you a different perspective on influence. Also, if you want to get a monthly curated overview of who we've talked with, the ideas we discussed, what we're reading and what we're listening to, please go ahead and sign up for our awesome newsletter. I can guarantee you that you'll love it or your money back since it's free. With that, We hope this week you go out and find your groove.